Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. Today we have our TruthQuest Q&A, it's our Wednesday Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the Bible says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God, the Word of Truth. Being like the Bereans who receive the Scriptures with all joy, uh, but then search them to find out whether these things are so. The Bible tells us that all we need is the Scriptures. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture has been given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. I want to welcome those of you who are watching from YouTube and Facebook, also those of you who are listening to this uh, via our podcast. We hope that this is a blessing for you. If you're watching this on Facebook, then take a moment and share it. If you're on YouTube, then like, share, subscribe, ring the bell. All of these things will help not only get these Q&As out, but also all of our studies and our hot topics, uh, which we believe are going to change lives. And uh, we'd love to have you partner with us uh, by in the gospel by doing that. So we have our first question today, and it is, can faith change God's plan? Now, I reduced these down a little bit from when they're asked, and this one was quite a bit lengthier. Uh, the idea was, if God has a certain will, a plan, can I, by faith and prayer, change that will that God has? And um, here's the thing about God's plan. God is sovereign, right? God can do whatever he wants to do. That's the sovereignty of God. God is so sovereign that he gave man a free choice. In other words, he gave men the ability to choose what they were going to do rather than choosing the will of God. Therefore, we can subvert the will of God only because God has given that up. Only because God has said, I will allow men to be able to choose. And so you and I get to choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And evil is in the world because men choose to do evil. So God gave man a choice so that we could love him, make a commitment to love him, because without, without a choice, you can't really have love. We have to have the right to be able to say, I choose to love God, otherwise we would be robots. And so God has given us that choice in his sovereignty. And so the, uh, the prayer of faith and, and pray, the plan of God uh, cannot be, I don't believe, can be subverted other than what God has already determined. In other words, God has determined certain things. But it is interesting that in the Old Testament, we have Hezekiah, who Isaiah comes in and says, thus says the Lord, you're going to die of this illness. He's bedridden. And Hezekiah, Isaiah leaves. Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and cries out to God. God hears him, stops Isaiah in the courtyard, sends him back in to tell him that he is going to live another, he's got, that God's going to grant him more life. And so it seems that God's plan was for him to die, but then God changed it with his prayer. I, I don't know what to do with that passage other than to go, God knows all things and God knows what he's doing. And God allows us to be able to make choices. I know the Bible says we don't have because we don't ask. I know the Bible says God's will and desire is that all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth in 2 Peter. And so if God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth, then if God, God is will all of the time, then they would be saved and everyone would come to the knowledge of the truth. But we know they don't do that. 
So God, in his own desire, has given up his will in certain points. That's his sovereignty. That's his right to be able to do it. And I don't have to be afraid of praying and, and, and walking in faith, subverting God's plan for my life. God's going to get his plan done in my life anyway. But if you don't have faith and you don't pray, then you may not get God's plan for your life. Because the Bible says you don't have because you don't ask and you don't receive when you ask because you ask amiss, wanting to spend it on your own pleasures. So can you negatively change the will of God by faith and, and, and um, change the, the plan or the will of God by prayer and faith? I think if, if you're not asking and you're not seeking or you're seeking for the wrong things, but if God's got a purpose for you, then that purpose is going to be fulfilled unless God leaves it up to a choice that you have. I hope that makes sense. Um, and uh, understanding this is extremely important for us because we want to make sure that we are praying, that we are living by faith, because God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we have to have prayer and faith, but I'm trusting God that God has his will that is immovable. In the sovereignty of God, if he has given up some of his sovereignty to our choices, then that's God's will. And who are you to speak against God if God decides that people who are going to get saved are, are the ones who believe, then God's chosen that. But God also has his sovereignty in the sense that there are certain things he's going to do and nothing's going to stop it. Jesus is coming back to this world. Nothing will stop that. That is God's will and God will bring that to pass. So there are certain things that God has given up to the choices of man but there are other things that god holds on to his will and they will come to pass and a lot of them are said in scripture all right so thank you very much for that question that was left at a previous q a i appreciate you uh by the way i looked at it this is our 43rd q a which is pretty amazing how fast uh time has gone by it seems like we just understand uh, understand that um i'm, I'm going to bring in a question our first question here is from Joe. Joe, it's good to see you. Joe comes to us from Facebook and Joe says, question, I understand that everything belongs to God. However, when it comes to church finances, tithes, I have always wondered why Calvary doesn't disclose the information to their parishioners. Being a nonprofit organization, I would like to know how to obtain this information and why it is not more readily available. Thank you. All right, Joe, um, I appreciate your question. Um, yeah, you can call, call the church office, set up a, an appointment with our bookkeeper. Uh, we have independent audits every year and our independent audits are gold standard. So if, if you go in and sit down with them, then you'll be able to see all of the finances of the church. And, um, that's, uh, that's what I can tell you, Joe. So I appreciate your question. And um, I do think that there needs to be transparency uh, within churches. And if um, you don't want to go, you can go in and, like I said, sit down um, with one of our one of our financial individuals to be able to do that. You can also, um, I'm not sure whether you can review the audit or not. I'm, I'm, I don't know why you wouldn't be able to review the audit, but we have an audit done every year. And um, for, for obvious reasons, we want to make sure that everything is above board. All right. So thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question. Uh, by the way, we're only allowing one question per person um, today. 
Uh, and because we get so many questions now, that we want to make sure that we can get fresh questions and give everybody a chance uh, to be able to write their questions in. If you're having trouble getting your questions in, make sure to put question in front of it or a question mark. I'm looking specifically for Golden Truth today, uh, who has a question that I guess we've gone over the last couple of times. All right. Um, and it, it put the word question or a question mark in front of it and we will be able to bring your questions in. So we have a question here from Albert. Albert says, hello, Pastor. We know that every word Jesus spoke had power and purpose. In Mark 5, 9, in Luke 8, 30, Jesus asked the demon its name. Why did he ask for its name or was he asking for the man's name? No, I believe that he was asking for the name of the demon. Um, and, and, and so here we, we kind of have got to kind of know how much Jesus knew when he faced this man. So Jesus shows up in, um, to the Gadareans and, and when he gets on shore, a demon possessed man who lived in the tombs there would roam around naked, ran directly at Jesus. They landed on the shore. Jesus got out of the boat and this demon ran up to Jesus. And, and fell on the ground and said, what do you have to do with us, O son of God? And Jesus cast out the demon and he was still possessed. And so I think what Jesus was looking for was, why did I cast out a demon in this? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus cast out a demon with just a word. And so uh, Jesus is looking for what's going on in this man. And when he hears that it's a legion, we are legion for we are many, then he cast them out in their entirety. So that's what I believe is going on there. Um, I believe that Jesus has the complete and total authority over the demonic forces. And that's why he wanted to know what the name of that particular demon was. In other places, Jesus didn't allow demons to speak. He made them be quiet because they would often say who he was. They knew and they could see that this was the Lord of glory in the flesh. And so he would not let them talk. But he had this conversation and maybe that's because maybe Jesus asked him his name so we would learn something about the demonic realm, about possession. Later on, he says, if a demon's cast out, he will go and get seven more of his friends and bring them in. Um, and so, uh, so we know that one person can be possessed with more demons now, with more than one demon now. That might be very well why Jesus did that. All right, so thank you very much, Albert. I appreciate that. Uh, it's good to see you, by the way. And we have another question from uh, Raquela. And I don't know if I'm butchering your name. Raquela, Raquela. Um, we may have talked about this before too. All right, sorry. All right, so hello, Pastor, and happy Wednesday. I feel as though I have forgiven someone for hurting me, but feel unsure. Is there a scripture that shows a way to know when a person has truly forgiven someone? All right, so I feel as though I have forgiven someone who is hurt, um, who for hurting me. Uh, is there a scripture that shows a way to know when a person has truly forgiven someone? Um, so if you're talking about yourself, uh, this could be this can be something that's difficult because although God can can remember sin no more, we can't. And when someone hurts us, something may remind us of that and we'll pick it back up again. We'll kind of get that bitterness again and we've got to let that go. So I liken forgiveness to letting someone go. There was the man who was forgiven a great debt. He went out and he found somebody who owed him 50 bucks. 
He grabbed him by the neck and said, pay me what you owe me. He said, be patient with me. I'll pay you everything that I owe you. And he threw him in debtor's prison. When the master who he owed a great debt to heard of that, he brought him back in and said, I'm going to throw you into debtor's prison because you didn't forget, forgive them. Um, and, and so he threw him in prison until he would pay every last penny. And so it's, it's a parable to help us understand that because we've been given, forgiven such a great debt, we have to forgive. But how would he have forgiven that guy when he grabbed him by the neck? He could have, he would just let him go. You don't owe me anything. And I believe that that's the point of forgiveness. Someone may have hurt you greatly. And I have no doubt that there are people that hurt people in great ways. And there's a lot of people who are listening to this now who have uh, been hurt in a lot of ways. And um, so uh, the way that you do, you forgive them is to let it go. You just let it go and, and allow um, them to be able to, to stand before God. It doesn't mean reconciliation, by the way. You may or may not be reconciled to that individual, but you would say, I don't owe him anything. That's what you would say. All right, thank you, Requila or Requia. I appreciate that. Um, your, I appreciate your question. We have a question here from Jari. Jari says, what does it mean when someone says the Bible is not a policy handbook? Should it be? And also Pastor Josh McZell's leaving case of racism. What are your thoughts? Thanks. Thank you, Jari. I appreciate that, or Jerry, whichever one it is. Um, what does it mean when someone says that the Bible is a policy handbook? It, it is not a policy handbook. Should it be? Uh, because I, I, I think I would agree with that statement. The Bible teaches us about Jesus. Jesus said, all of the scriptures spoke of me. And they're a revelation of the Messiah and a revelation of Jesus in our lives. And then the New Testament, reveals clearly how Jesus fulfilled them, how we came, how we can receive him and have eternal life with him. So if I, I would liken the, the Bible to a book that can give you life, um, and I don't know that there's any other book on earth that could really be like this. Um, it's not really a handbook that I'm gonna, I go, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna find out what it is that I wanna live. Now there's a sense by which we go to the scriptures to find out what the word of God says to be able to believe it. And we wanna be obedient to the word of God. Jesus said, blessed are those who do and who hear and do the word of God. So obedience to the word of God is very important. Uh, we, I, I often say we do great commission work. That's our goal, that's our plan. We go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that Jesus commanded. So there is a sense by which we use the Bible as a book for what we believe and what we don't believe to be able to search it to see what things, kind of things we need to be doing and not doing, and we need to have by faith, trust in what the Word of God says, believe it and follow it. Um, uh, Josh McDowell, leaving case of racism, uh, so I, I only know a little bit about this. Um, Josh McDowell has been a great apologist. Uh, he made some statements. I think it was about critical race theory and misspoke. Uh, I think he probably most of what he said was okay, but there were a couple of little things that were wrong. And I think that when, I, I don't know how old he is now. My, my guess is, you know, somewhere in his 70s now. And I think that when he got attacked for it, 
he just felt like, you know, I've been thinking about retiring anyway. I'm just going to go ahead and step down. And, um, and, and, and that he did. Now, I don't, I haven't, I've only read one thing. I've only listened to one thing about it and that was it. So I don't know anything else about what happened with Josh McDowell. Um, I don't want to act like I, I know all of the details because I don't. I'm certainly not speaking from a position of authority when I bring them up. All right. So thank you, Jari, for your question. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a great day. Uh, we have another question from Adrian. And Adrian says, my daughter is worried about climate change. When Jesus returns, will the earth be healed or regenerated? I encouraged her to be a good steward of what uh, God has given us by recycling, etc. How can I help my daughter not live in fear of climate collapse? Thanks, Adrian. I really appreciate that. Uh, I find it interesting that Jesus said, I believe it's in Matthew 24, that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would remain upon the earth. That means that God moves up his time clock for when the end of the age is going to take place. God would want to wait longer, probably, so more people could get saved and give the knowledge of the truth. Uh, and so God will not allow the world to get to a point where it's going to be destroyed before his purposes are done, before what he does is desired. And um, we know about global warming, that it's been happening for thousands of years. If what man is doing is accelerating that, God will not be subverted. And our trust is in God. Our trust is that, that God's gonna watch out for us and take care of us. And I would encourage your daughter to trust in God, that God's got this, God knows this, the things that are happening. If, if men are destroying the earth by climate change, God knows it. God's able to allow the earth to be able to remain the way it is until he returns. And um, like I said, I mean, there was a high ice age not that long ago. And a lot of the water levels have already risen because of the, of the warming up from the ice age. Um, and it may be accelerating it. Um, yeah, the interesting thing about recycling is there's a real problems with recycling right now. China used to buy all of our recycling stuff and they're not buying it anymore. And it costs a lot to recycle. And so they're trying to find new ways to fund it. It's not that we shouldn't recycle. I do. I think that we should. Um, the trash problem is a huge problem. The amount of trash that is made by the world in one day is a huge problem. And uh, the people that take care of our trash and recycling are doing a great job right now in being able to handle those things. So yeah, I think encouraging her to recycle would be great, but also know, hey, this world's gonna be brought to an end with God. Jesus Christ is going to return. Establish a kingdom here on this earth for a thousand years, and he's gonna rule and reign from the throne of David. And then he's gonna, at the end of that, this world will be destroyed with a, with a fire, be completely wiped out and destroyed. And then there will be a new heavens and a new earth. So that's what I would do, Andrea. I would, um, or Adrian, I would, I would go to the scriptures that talk about the new heaven and the new earth, and I would study that and show her that, and then really trust God and really ask God. I mean, ask God to help if she's really concerned about it. Ask God to help that she would um, that that God would intervene 
and we would not have uh, climate change that would destroy the world. Okay? So thank you very much for your question. I appreciate it. It's good to see you. I hope that you have a great day. Uh, we have another question, or we have a question here from Michaela. Michaela says, question, are we to support, are we supposed to be celebrating Passover each year? If we are supposed to do it in the way the Jews do, bread with no yeast, etc. Uh, Passover is part of the Old Testament. It's part of the law. So the law was given and they were given how they were supposed to do Passover and they did it every year. Obviously, Jesus died on Passover. So he is our Passover lamb. I don't believe that we need to do it, be, need to keep Passover because Jesus is our Passover lamb and he's the high priest that gave the Passover lamb and he fulfilled uh, that. However, it does speak of Jesus. And if you want to keep Passover, you can. And there, there are a lot of people who do Passover meals, do seders, right? And do Passover meals. A lot of Christians that do it. A lot of um, Jewish fellowships, Jewish Christian fellowships that do it. And so it's a, it's a good thing to remember and to look back at what Passover was. But it's even a better thing to understand how Passover works and that the death angel passes over when the blood of the lamb is applied to our lives. And if you, in Passover, you took the blood of that lamb and, and applied it to the doorposts and the mantles, then the death angel would pass over. And so the death angel passes over us uh, when we apply the blood of the lamb to our lives. So that's the real power that we find in, uh, that's the real power that we find in celebrating Passover um, but is knowing the biblical aspect of it. And no, we don't have to, we are no longer under the law, so we don't have to celebrate Passover. If it's something that you like to do, you, you know some people who do it and you want to join them, you can certainly do that. But you know that you are not, when you do that, you're remembering what Jesus did. You're, you're not doing anything that God's going to reward you for or doing anything better than any other Christian is doing. And I think that when we start doing the things that are in the law, it's really easy for us to begin to get prideful and to begin to think about certain things like that. All right, Michaela, I appreciate that. Thank you very much for your question. It's good to see you. Thank you for joining us from Facebook. We have a question from Matt. Matt says, question, do Jewish people still have animal sacrifices? If no, then why not? Thanks, Matt, for your question. I appreciate that. There were sacrifices in the temple until they were stopped in 70 AD. So Jesus was crucified probably somewhere in 32, April of 32, we're just gonna we'll just say that, could have been 33, uh, could have been, some people believe 31, but right around that time. It depends on what you do with, well, it depends on what you do with year one and, and, and coming from that. Um, but somewhere in the early 30s, then 40 years later, the temple is destroyed, or about 40 years later, the temple is destroyed and sacrifices are stopped because there's no temple to give sacrifices in anymore. And there's been no temple that's been rebuilt. So no way to give sacrifices. There are some Jews today that do give sacrifices. Obviously, they're not giving them in the temple. They were meant to take their sacrifices to the temple and give them in the temple. But there, there are those who are doing animal sacrifices um, but we, the Jewish people, do not, in, in general, do it. 
and they would have no way to be able to do it. Now, we know from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the Antichrist is going to stop sacrifices in the temple. So we know the temple is going to be rebuilt. It's one of the things that we're looking for as we look at the end of the age for the rebuilding of the temple. It's one of the things we want to watch because the Bible tells us about it and we can look and see if there's any progress being made along those lines. There are those who believe that they have a red heifer. Uh, there are those that believe that w which would, a red heifer is used to cleanse certain implements of the temple. There are those that have built the, the temple implements. There are, there's funding that has been raised to rebuild the temple so that, and, and there's plans that have been drawn up rebuilding the temple on top of the temple mount. The Dome of the Rock is there today, but there is room next to the Dome of the Rock and there is bedrock on the surface under the Dome of the Spirits. And if you go up to the Temple Mount and you look, you can see Mariah bedrock under the Dome of the Spirits. And there are those who believe that that was the, where the Ark of the Covenant rested during the time of Solomon in the Temple of Solomon. We don't have any way to know that without excavating the area. If they did, they could find the foundations probably for Solomon's temple. They're, they're probably there. Remember, the temple was, was rebuilt by Ezra and then the third temple was an expansion of that temple that was rebuilt by Ezra and the retaining wall of the, the Temple Mount area was made larger, the retaining wall was made larger and so many people believe that the Dome of the Rock should actually, the, that the temple was actually further over right in front of the East Gate. So if you go in front of the East Gate and you look directly past that, you have the Dome of the Spirits. And so that could be where the temple is rebuilt and then there will be sacrifices that will be done again. Now the Bible also says in the Old Testament that during the millennium period, they're gonna have sacrifices. So it seems like there are sacrifices, if these are animal sacrifices, and I think that that's what it says, then these sacrifices are gonna be in memorial to what Jesus did, not sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin, but kind of like we take communion, Jewish people will give sacrifices in memorial to the sacrifice that Jesus gave. All right, Matt, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, there's no way for them to do animal sacrifices today because there isn't a temple, but the temple will be rebuilt. Thank you very much. It's good to see you. We have a question from TC. TC1 says, question, what does the Bible really mean when it says to serve others and put others above yourself? Thank you very much for the question, TC. I appreciate that. So the Bible says, don't do anything from selfish ambition. This is very difficult for most people. We live in a day when people want to promote themselves. We have Instagram, and YouTube and TikTok and all of these things where our culture is very self-absorbed and interested in itself. And so doing something out of selfish ambition uh, becomes, well, it's our sin nature to, to do that. And the Bible says don't do anything out of selfish ambition, but put other people's interest above your own interest. This goes against our nature, but it goes with the Holy Spirit. And when we're doing that, we're doing the things that the Holy Spirit told us to do. When we put other people's interests above our own interests and um, living for others is what Jesus taught us to do. 
that we are not living for ourselves, that every day we should look for ways to serve others, to help others, and I believe that we will be more effective in the gospel of Jesus Christ, more effective in the love that is out there. We're trusting God by faith to take up our own causes, our own personal things, and this is something that can be very practical, by the way. I heard a message by Charles Swindoll years ago, which was a really powerful message on living for other people. He was with his son and he had gone on a rafting trip. And he said that while he was on this rafting trip, he made sure, first of all, that they had really good seats in the bus. That he got there early, he took the, you know, found the best seats you could find and he kept them for him and his son. Then when they got there, he had kind of watched the guides and chose the one that he wanted. So he made sure to get over with the, the guide that he thought was the best. Also, they had rafts out and, and, and they chose, he chose what he thought was the best raft for him and his son. He just wanted to have it be a really good experience for his son and for them. And then when he got back to church, the next sermon that he taught was in Philippians chapter two. Put other people's interest above your own interest. And I love what Charles Swindoll says. He says, I've never been more ashamed in all of my life of, my, of the way I, treat, I acted. I should have been giving people the best seat. I should have been taking the worst raft. I should have been looking and, and, and allowing other people to have the best guide. So by him taking the best guide, he left other people not having the best guide. By him taking the best raft, he left other people with the worst raft. And he thought that was a horrible example to his son. I really appreciate that honesty. I appreciate his conviction that it was a moment when God said to him, put other people's interests above your own interest and live for them. And so it's a very practical thing that we can do every day. We can do it when we drive, putting other people's interest above our own. We can do it when we're in the grocery store. We can do it when we interact with people. We can do it when we're walking through a door or holding a door open for someone rather than letting the door close behind us and letting them open it up. We just put other people's interest above our own. And by doing so, we are being like Christ because Jesus humbled himself, became a man, let his glory aside. He became a little lower than the angels and became a man, humbled himself and served mankind. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do. This question, TC, I believe is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how we as Christians are supposed to live. And it's so radically different than the world. The world wants to get what they can get for themselves, but we are supposed to live for other people, putting other people's interests above our own interests. And it says, don't look out for your, your own interest only. So we do have to look out for our own interest because that's just part of being a good steward with life, but not only. We look out for the interests of others and put other people above ourselves and don't do anything out of selfish ambition. And I think all of those things are easier said than done. All right, TC, so thank you very much. I do believe, as I said, that this question is at the heart of Christianity. Uh, we have another question from, it uh, looks like Sean. All right, so um, Sean says, question, I believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of scripture. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly what that is. All right, but I am curious, why do you think in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit seems to give preference to the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament 
rather than the original Masoretic text. All right, so um, plenary verbal inspiration. So I'm, I'm just gonna take it that that's the standard uh, form of inspiration, uh, meaning that God spoke through men their own personalities and they wrote what God wanted to and that God made sure that the word of God was faithful. All scriptures inspired by God, the process of inspiration, profitable for reproof, correction, doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. Psalms 12, I think it's six and seven, says that God will preserve his word from generation to generation. So God supernaturally moved to preserve his word. Now, to your question, um, and, and maybe somebody can write out the definition of plenary or uh, pl yeah, plenary verbal inspiration, so we can have that. Uh, I'll read it if I if I see it as I'm making my way through. Um, so, why did the uh, why did the Holy Spirit give preference to the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament rather than the Masoretic text? Because here's what I believe: the lang the Greek language had, had taken over the entire world. Jesus spoke Greek, Aramaic. And we believe that most often they spoke Aramaic, but it's possible that most often they spoke Greek. We, we believe by the time we get the, the Greek translation of the Bible that, that we already have one translation because Jesus spoke Aramaic. But we know that Jesus knew Greek. We also know that he knew Latin as he, as he talked to Pilate. And so Greek was the, the, the language that God established that the, the gospel would go around the world. And we still have our the, the oldest manuscripts that we have in Greek. Uh, we have some in Coptic, which is Egypt or Egyptian, but most of them are in, in Greek. And so the New Testament often quotes the Septuagint instead of the Masoretic text. And we can see that clearly. When you go back and you look at the way it's quoted in the Greek and we go back to the Septuagint, we can see that the Septuagint is quoted. And I believe that God used not Hebrew as the language to go around the world, but God used Greek. And that God gave us the Septuagint, which was completed sometime around 165. It's the entire Old Testament in Greek. And so, uh, and, and it has the book of Daniel, by the way, which is really important because there's people who believe that the book of Daniel was not written when it was said that it was written. But I, that's why I believe that God, that the Holy Spirit uses the Septuagint translation instead of the original Masoretic text, instead of the Hebrew writings that we have. So in order to quote them, they were quoting them in Greek. And maybe a lot of early Christians, maybe even Jewish Christians, were using the Septuagint because Greek was the common language of that day. Alexander the Great had taken Greek culture and the Greek language around the world. The Bible says, that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. I believe it was the fullness of time because it was perfect for Jesus to come and die for man's sins. The gospel could go around the world on Roman roads. It, it could be spoken by the Greek language around the world. They could be written in Greek, which Paul did as he wrote his letters to these different churches, uh, Thessalonica, Thessalonica uh, Galatia, uh, these other that spoke Greek languages. It was at the perfect time. Had it not been at that time, but been earlier, then we wouldn't have had that ability. And I think, Sean, that's why the, that the Masoretic text is used rather than the Hebrew scriptures in a quoting a lot 
of the New Testament. Right? And um, so thank you very much for your question. I, I appreciate that. And uh, let's see. All right. Uh, so we'll, we have another question here. Question, are fallen angels demons? I thought angels had bodies, but demons don't because they are disembodied spirits from the Nephilim. Thoughts. All right, Wayne. Um, so yeah, there is, there, there's these couple of different views that are out there about demons. Uh, that demons are fallen angels. But there's this passage in Genesis chapter 6, which says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and made their abode with them, took them as wives and actually married them. And um, so I'm going to see if I can find my notes on this here uh, because I want to refer to a couple of, of passages on it. Uh, I need to kind of keep this, there it is. I need to kind of keep this up in the in the front. So I'm going to bring you in here and I want to talk about this for a minute. Um, we'll talk about angels and we'll talk about this event. All right. So um, here we have, that's not the right one. Here we go. So here we have three passages in the New Testament. How do we determine what Genesis 6 was really about? Well, I think that these three passages help us to do that. So first of all, in 2 Peter 2, 4, it says, for if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So there's some angels that sinned. They were cast down to hell. They are kept there in chains of darkness. In uh, Jude 1, 6, it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper dominion, but left their own abode. And it says in Genesis 6 that they married human women. The angels of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. And he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So it seems like if that happened, that God did not allow them to be able to remain, continue to roam the earth. And maybe it happened afterwards as well, that God doesn't give demons free reign to do whatever they want to do, that they have to keep, if they break certain things, then God will keep them in chains of darkness. Uh, remember one of the angel demons said to Jesus, are you here to send us um, back before our time? In 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, it says, but who also went and preached to the spirits in prison. This is Jesus after his death on the cross and before he was resurrected, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah. So there's these spirits in prison that were formerly disobedient during the days of Noah, which would have to be this event. While the ark was being prepared in, which is a few as it eight souls were saved through water. So I do believe that I believe that these are angels that saw the daughters of men and made their abode with them. Were, was it through possession? Were, were angels able to make a body? How were they able to genetically change their, their offspring to have Nephilim? All of these are not answered and we don't know. And where the Bible is silent, we want to be silent. So we can have a lot of conjecture, but we have to let it be known that that's our opinion. So I do believe the Bible gives us enough information to know that that is, um, that that's something that happened. How exactly it happened, we don't know. And I don't believe that the, the sons of, of, of God are the descendants of Seth intermarrying the, the women of Cain. 
All right, I don't believe that. All right, um, so the question is, all of these Nephilim are wiped out during the, the flood and they're believed to be demons. There's just nothing in the Bible that would make us think that. It's the reason that I don't believe it. We do know that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against a spiritual host of wickedness, against principalities and powers, and a spiritual host in heavenly places. We know that there were princes in the book of Daniel that Gabriel, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, so that passage in Galatians 6, excuse me, Ephesians 6, tells us that we don't we wrestle against principalities. So there seems to be different ranks of demons. And I believe that these demons like that were in, that were legion, uh, being cast out of the uh, pigs, are cast into the pigs and then going over the cliff, I believe that they are the host of heaven. I believe that they're the lowest ranking demons that are out there. And there's some higher ranking demons as well, uh, principalities as it were. And we know that, that Michael is called the prince of your people to Daniel. So he is the prince, uh, Michael is the prince of the nation of Israel. Uh, and, and I don't know of any scripture in the Bible that would say that these fallen Nephilim, because they were some kind of a hybrid, could continue to wander the earth. Their bodies were killed, but their spirits weren't, and they continue to wander around on the earth. I understand that people thought that in the first century. Rabbis wrote about it. I understand that you have a little bit about this in the book of Enoch, but that doesn't make it true. And I think that's really important for us to go back to what the Bible says. And if there is something that is out there that really helps us to be able to understand if there's a scripture, I'm open to finding that scripture. I'm open to going, yeah, these demons are a fall, are the spirits of Nephilim, but I don't believe that that is the case. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate that, Wayne. Thank you for your question. We have a question from Diana. Diana says, uh, question, I might've misunderstood your message last week. Will we be persecuted before the rapture? And that is why some will not make it to the end. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. So I'm, I'm teaching, I was teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I think that's the one you're talking about. Um, and we're also teaching about discerning the times on Sunday. So we've had these passages about the last days here recently. Um, so Diana, yes, we are going to be persecuted. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Blessed are you when men persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for my name's sake. Rejoice because you have your reward from your father who is in heaven. So we are going to be persecuted and Christians are going to die. They are dying. They're, they're dying all around the world today. There are Christians that are dying in Afghanistan right now. There are Christians who are dying in Iran right now. There are Christians in Muslim world that are being persecuted and are giving their life for Christ and they're receiving the crown, the martyr's crown as a reward. And God will take vengeance on those that are, are persecuting the saints. That's what we're covering today, tonight in a couple of hours in first, second Thessalonians chapter one. So um, yeah, we are gonna have difficulties and troubles, but here's the thing, the tribulation period is God's wrath. And we are not, God's not mad at us. 
And so God has said in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 that we are not going to experience the wrath of God. In Romans 5.9, we're not going to experience the wrath of God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that uh, we are, we've been saved from the wrath that is to come. Uh, in Revelation 3.10, it says that God will keep us from the hour of testing that is coming upon the whole earth. In Luke 21, I think it's 35 or 36, he said, pray that you'd be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come upon the earth. Why would he tell us to pray and be counted worthy to escape if we're not going to escape? So yes, persecution. No. Or yes, tribulation. In this world, we're going to have tribulation. Yes. Um, and the word tribulation comes from a, a tribulum where they would, it would have teeth on a board and they would run it over grain to break the husk away from the grain. And that's tribulation. So in this world, we'll have tribulation, but there is a tribulation period that is the indignation of God and the wrath of God, and we are not going to experience that. Uh, they're very important for us to make that point because some people say we just, you know, those who believe in the preacher of rapture just want to escape tribulation, I, we, I know we can't. I know we won't. I know that in this world, we will have difficulties, problems, and, and, and tribulation. We're going to face it. It's the wrath of God that we are not going to face. Hopefully, that um, helps you, Diana. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure the point I was making that would relate to this. So, if I did remember that, I would clarify it a little bit better. But hopefully, that answers uh, your question. All right, so we have another question here from Renee. Renee, good to see you. By the way, if you are here with us at our Q&A for the very first time, we're really glad you're here. We hope that you are blessed by the time that we spend looking at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the Bible says so that we can know what we're going to believe. So Renee says, I, I, encouraged, uh, I encouraged didn't people on my contact phone list uh, but there is someone who puts the church down where I go I attend Calvary I love going to Calvary because I've grown I've grown in the world what can I say to this person to encourage her to come back to Calvary or how can this type of conversation charge from change from putting the church down thank you Pastor Robert all right, so um, so I take it there are some people that you know who are not happy with Calvary, and they're speaking against it. I, I the, the first sentence here doesn't really make sense to me about on your contact, on your phone, um, but I'm just going to go ahead and take it like that. Um, so, hey, there, there are people that might have problems with what, what Calvary does. We are not perfect, but we endeavor to do things right. And if someone isn't happy, if we haven't done something that has made them dis dis uh, unhappy, um, then I don't know, you could be a go-between for them. You could search things out and see whether or not we've really treated them correctly. If we haven't, then I would want to change it. I would want to make sure that we treat them properly. And if we have and they're upset and we, we just got to do what we believe that God's caused us to do. There's almost no way to be able to have a church and not have people get upset with you. Um, but I would just love them. I would not make it a big deal if they continue to tear down the church that you're going to. 
Uh, you may want to distance yourself from them because if you love Calvary and you want to be used by God there, um, and I'm not saying that you're not going to be used by God if you're listening to them. I'm just saying if it becomes just this kind of constant thing that you're dealing with, then you might need to distance yourself from them. You want to be able to have the church that you go to be you have a, be strong, something you're excited about. It's one of the reasons that I tell people don't put down someone else's church. Even if you think that there's something wrong with it, don't do it. And I've been accused of, of putting down churches that are here in Tucson, other churches, but I haven't done it. I'm careful not to do it. If I find out that someone is going to a church that I believe is a genuine church, then I don't tear it down. Even though I might disagree with some of the things that they do. Hey, they're, you know, they're God's child. God can take care of them and they can do the things the way that God wants to do them. All right. So, Renee, if you want to clarify what you're saying here about your contact on your phone list, um, and they, they put down Calvary and I attend. So, I, I guess that's it. I guess I probably answered that. All right. So, thank you very much, uh, Renee, for your question. I do appreciate that. Uh, we have another question. Let's see. Um, it looks like that's not complete. Okay, yeah, it's not complete. Um, if you would, put the word question in front of your question and then reread your question a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense before you submit it. That way, I don't have to guess at what you're saying when I'm, I'm looking at your question or maybe just pass it by if it doesn't make sense, okay? So read it, reread it, make sure that you've got what it says there, all right? So we have a question here from Polly. Uh, good to see you, Polly. Polly says, question, in your message a few Sundays ago, you touched on Hitler leaving eternity in a different hell than a good person Oh, living eternity, okay. Yeah, not leaving, living. All right, uh, in your message a few Sundays ago, you touched on Hitler living eternity in a different hell than a good person that never came to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Could you elaborate? Yeah, I don't believe it's a different hell, okay? I, I think that Jesus said, some will be beaten with few stripes and some will be beaten with many. This is in Luke chapter 12. My, my question is simply this, who are those who are beaten with a few stripes? And who are those who are beaten with many? And, and my statement was that God's not going to treat someone who is good by human standards like he would treat Hitler who was bad on I mean, human standards for everyone. Now, I understand it's God's standards that matter, but people can be better and people can be worse. And eternity is going to be more tolerable for some than for others. Jesus said that judgment was going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it was for Corazon and for Capernaum, those two cities. And, and so there is, God doesn't treat everybody the same. God treats people differently. And uh, I, uh, they're, 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 it's, still, it's still torment, it's still judgment, but it's not the same for everyone. Hell will be more tolerable for some than others. So not a different hell that's very important um, you have a place where they go today as a holding place, those who don't know God, they don't go into the presence of God, probably to that chasm that Jesus talked about when you talked about Abraham's comfort and this chasm where it was uncomfortable. And the guy said, send over Lazarus 
to, to give me some water. And, um, and Abraham said, we can't go back and forth from this place. So there seems to be a holding place for them now. Then they will be judged. And then there will be, be punishment after that judgment. Uh, Daniel chapter 12 says, some will be raised to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. But it's going to be different for everybody. And this is something that I've said is often neglected by pastors when they teach on hell. They'll, they'll teach on hell, but they won't talk about the few stripes and the many stripes and the way God treats people differently. So, okay, thank you very much, Polly. I appreciate your question. I think this is a very important issue when we talk about the justice of God and we wanna teach God as God is. We don't wanna make up uh, a God. Uh, we don't want a God, try to be, make a God more palatable to the world. The world doesn't like the fact that God's a judge. The world doesn't like the fact that God's jealous. The world doesn't like the fact that God's gonna bring vengeance. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Uh, so the world malign God for those things and Christians sometimes will back away from them. Well, God's not really jealous and God's not really vengeful and, and God's not really a judge, but the Bible teaches that he is. And he is a consuming fire. And so we believe him as he is. And, but, but on the other end of that, when the Bible tells us that God's gonna treat people fairly and differently and that you're gonna be judged by the things you do and some are gonna be beaten with few stripes, I think we gotta give credence to that and understand that hell is not the same for everybody. And, and I think that this is a very important point. All right, Polly, thank you very much for your question and for asking for that to be clarified. All right, so we have, uh, we have a question from uh, Just Saying. All right, so good to see you, Just Saying. Thank you for joining us. Really glad to have you here. Um, did Mary Magdalene get stoned or did people in those days stone both male and female um, sinners? Why the male sinners auto um, auto-forgiven in this cause case with prostitutes. Okay, just saying. Um, first of all, I think that maybe there's a little, a lack of clarity here in what the Bible says about Mary Magdalene. The Bible never says Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. The Bible never says Mary Magdalene was stoned. And people have confusion between the woman caught in the act of adultery and Mary Magdalene, the the woman who probably was a prostitute who wept at the feet of Jesus and, and wiped her tears uh, off his feet with her hair and that Jesus told her that her sins were forgiven. We don't have any reason to think that that's Mary, um, Mary Magdalene. So I think there's some confusion as to Mary Martha who anointed the feet of Jesus, this woman that cried at his feet, the, the, the woman caught in the act of adultery. And I think all of that is being meshed together in your question. Just saying. What we do know about Mary Magdalene is that she was possessed by seven demons. We don't know anything else. And I think it's probably best to not assume that someone was a prostitute if we don't know. So we don't know what Mary Magdalene was going through, what she'd been delivered from. It's certainly possible. But since we don't know, we probably shouldn't make that distinction. Um, as far as your question goes, when the scribes and Pharisees brought the woman caught in in the act of adultery to Jesus, they didn't bring the man. If they caught her in the act of adultery, the man was caught too. So this is probably a setup for this woman. 
and Jesus. And Jesus handled it properly. Uh, in the Old Testament, yeah, you stoned men and women, whether they were caught, if they were caught in the act of adultery. You were told to stone them. So it was both who were supposed to be stoned, not just the women. And um, remember, she wasn't stoned, right? Jesus said, you are without sin, cast the first stone. And he sat down and he right, wrote something on the ground and they left one by one from the oldest to the youngest. All right, so just trying to clarify those few issues. All right, so thank you very much for your question. If you've got questions for us, would you, when you write them out, make sure we read them, make sure that they make sense. Um, that'll make things a little bit easier here. All right, um, so thank you very much. Looks like there's some good conversations uh, going on as I'm looking through here about whether or not Jesus was political and also about climate control being a sign of the end of the world. Um, I'd love to chime in on a few of those things, but let me continue on here and um, look, at, uh, look at these questions. We have just a few more minutes, all right? Um, sorry, Jari, we had, um, uh, was, that, was that Jari? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we were just doing one question uh, right now, all right? And um, if I get through here and I have time left and there's no other questions that are left, I'll go back and catch some of those questions that were left behind, all right? So I'm just looking for another question here. Again, looks like, as I said, some good interaction going on uh, in the, on, on the live stream. A lot of things here. Um, all right, uh, let's see. All right, so a lot of things written out. Looks like we have a question from Lynn. Uh, Lynn says, comes to us from Facebook. Lynn, it's good to see you question sorry I have a broken hand all right sorry to hear that I hope it heals quickly uh, what do you say to those who say we can't be Christians and be against illegals crossing the border by the thousands and that Jesus was a liberal they say uh, okay so first of all um, I don't think that Jesus was a liberal politically or theologically so you can have liberals, progressives, political, political liberals or progressives. You can have theological liberals. Uh, the Sadducees were theological liberals. They didn't believe in a resurrection. When the Bible talked about a resurrection in the Old Testament, they didn't believe in it. And Jesus used scripture plainly to challenge them on their position. Jesus was not involved in politics. Uh, when people came to him and tried to get him politically involved, like the, Jew, the Jews who had their blood, mink, Pilate mingled their blood with the blood of their sacrifices, this was a perfect opportunity for Jesus to speak against the Romans. It was a perfect opportunity for him to get political, but he didn't. Instead, he said, you think that they're any worse off than you, but the same thing will happen to you unless you repent. So Jesus took it and made it personal. So Jesus didn't, didn't make it, it was not political. I do believe that we should have compassion on, um, on people that are leaving countries that are devastated for them. I believe that. I also believe that there's legal processes for that to happen and they should follow those legal processes. So when we're talking about undocumented aliens that are coming over into the United States, uh, by the thousands, they are bypassing and subverting those who are trying to get here legally 
who are filling out all those things legally. And I think it's compassion to say, let's obey the laws of the land and let's help people get over here legally. And I, I do think that there is a place for many immigrants, uh, for many people who are not citizens of the United States to be here. But it just should be done legally. And I, I don't want to speak for Jesus. That's a, that's a really hard thing to do. I think Jesus would say this. I don't know. They think that they thought they had Jesus figured out and they didn't. So I, all I can tell you is what I feel about that, my own personal opinion. I think it's bad to just allow them to come over. Um, I, I, many of these undocumented aliens, many of these immigrants have advice before they ever come over the border. So they're coming over the border now and saying things. They're just walking up to people. They're not trying to hide anymore. They're just saying things that they've been, that they've had people who are up on the legal aspect have been telling them what to say. And I, I don't, for, for our nation as an American, I don't think that this is good, especially for those that are, are trying to do it the legal way, trying to get in here legally. And here comes all of these people. I think you'll probably stop people from trying to do it legally and if if it becomes the standard of our land for them just to be able to cross over all right and I, uh, jesus wasn't liberal uh not theologically and i don't think he was liberal or conservative politically all right and i think we make a mistake when we try to make jesus like us and i think that's a mistake that they're making as well um i would love to hear their arguments for whether or not jesus was um whether whether or not Jesus was a liberal, if they have anything biblical that they try to point to, or if they just make that statement, because people can say whatever they want to say. All right. So um, thank you guys. I see some of you guys thanking me. We're here at the end of our study. I want to bring in one more question, and then we're going to wrap things up. Uh, I want to give you an invitation to join us at church tonight. You can do that at our East and West campus. 6 o'clock at our East Campus, 7.15 at our West Campus. Now, we'll be taking communion tonight, so we would love to have you come and join us for communion. We're also going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to be talking about the glorious return of Jesus Christ to this earth and, and that we, the saints, are going to be with him. So um, I want to give you that invitation. You can also watch it online. Facebook, is it will be live. On YouTube, it will be live. Also on calvarytucson.com if you want to join us in, in that community for these services. All right? And also, hey, if you're, if you're watching this uh, on Facebook, then share this, would you? Uh, let's try to get the word out to as many people as possible. Uh, if you're on YouTube, then like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell. Um, again, this is a way to help us be able to get our hot topics and our services, the teachings that we do out to more people. We wanna reach as many people for Christ as we possibly can. And, and by you, subscribing helps us to be able to do that. Subscribing and especially specifically ringing the bell helps us to be able to do that because YouTube sees that as a metric and then pushes our stuff out more if you do that. So really good to have you guys here. I'm gonna bring one more question in, then I'm gonna wrap things up. And uh, this is from JG, what is the flood that comes out of the serpent's mouth in Revelation 12, 15. So the Bible often uses the word flood to speak of a war. That, you know, that, a, that its end will be with a flood and it means a war. And I believe that that's what it means when it says that this flood comes out of the serpent's mouth. He makes war against the nation of Israel. 
So the serpent is trying to destroy Israel, and he, he and God protects him from the war that the anti that the, the enemy brings out probably through the Antichrist. So the arch enemy, Satan, um, who opposes all that is God, um, is attacking Israel, and the flood here is war when it speaks of the flood uh, that he tries to destroy them with. So he's using an army, a battle war, to try to do that. That's what I believe. All right, JG, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys all being here with us today. I hope you guys are really blessed. Stay close to Jesus. Study God's word beyond that truth quest, not an I'm right quest. Don't defend yourself just because you believe something. Know why you believe it and be willing to change if you find it in scripture. Just make sure you rightly divide the word of God and um, that you don't allow someone to deceive you when they are misquoting or taking things out of context. All right. So God bless you guys. Uh, we will see you later on. I'm out.